Turn back with me. You know, the letter of First Timothy. Letter of First Timothy. Uh, we are working through this letter together. And so we'll be here this morning in First Timothy chapter 2. First uh, Timothy, we have said, is a letter from Paul to Timothy about the life of the church. Uh, it is a letter that has been called a manual for church life. Uh, but we're saying that it's, it's more than just that. That Paul has an underlying concern expressed throughout this letter that the life of the church would be such that it would protect and promote persevering faith or our perseverance in the faith. And I just wanted to show you a couple of those places this morning. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, it begins there with this uh, Paul calling God our Savior. That's an unusual thing. You don't find a lot in the New Testament. You find it here in Timothy. You find it over in Jude, maybe one or two other places. Uh, But he talks about God the Father as our Savior as he walks into this letter. And then you drop down to verse 4 of chapter 1. And there's this concern for furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And we, as we looked at that uh, recently, we understood that what Paul's talking about there is the gospel in a word, the plan, the stewardship of God, which is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God's you know, making the promise and then his plan to bring that uh, to fulfillment in Christ. And then later even, we're still awaiting the culmination of what that will look like in heaven and on earth. And so he's talking about the gospel there. If you want to flip over to chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, where we'll be this morning, he talks about it was Christ Jesus who came Uh, That's actually chapter 1, verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 3. We see God our Savior again in verse 3. And that God in verse 4 desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And uh, there's more places we could go to, but if you go kind of towards the back half of the letter where Paul's doing more application as he's wont to do. Chapter 4, verse 8, he talks about how godliness is profitable since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so knowing Christ is profitable today, but eternally. It's eternally important and eternally significant. And so he'll say to Timothy there, Uh, words that we can apply to ourselves. Pay close attention to yourself, verse 6 of chapter 4, and your teaching. For you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. And if you hear that and what Paul's saying, it matters. Where he began in chapter 1 about, I left you there in Ephesus so that you would command certain men not to teach false doctrine because all it does, it ends up in frivolous, empty, vain discussions and not the gospel. And so pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching because it's through the teaching of the theology of the gospel that you ensure salvation for yourself and those who hear you. In other words, you're not leading people into a false gospel. 
and you're not leading them away from the true gospel. If you teach good truths, the doctrines of the gospel. And so a key then for understanding this letter uh, is that emphasis of Paul. And then in chapter one, he spends the whole chapter as we've now looked through it, emphasizing that truth matters, but more than just that truth matters, that truth is absolutely vital. It's an absolute necessity to faith and persevering faith. And what a great testimony we receive this morning just to that fact here from the Daltons. The, one of the greatest challenges, as they're expressing there in the Philippines, is a system of belief and understanding that would uh, allow the amalgamizing of the truth of Scripture into a worldview when the truth of Scripture says this is the only truth. And you must deconstruct what is believed in order to reconstruct what is true. And that's no less true here than it is there. That we often come to Scripture needing to know the truths of Scripture, doctrine, theology, what is always true. And it is meant to tear down what we believed to be true that's not true. And how we perceive life in ways that aren't true. And it's meant to replace in us truth so that our life is then shaped and conformed to that truth and by that truth. Um, It's kind of like my teddy bear at home. Yes, I, I have one. You can laugh. It's okay. It's really a teddy chewy. It's a Chewbacca. All right. It's a Chewbacca bear. You want one. It's so cool. You want one. You know you do. All right. And, and I, I wound up getting this Chewbacca bear because we took the kids to a, the Build-A-Bear store uh, sometime in the last year. I don't remember how long ago it was. Uh, and they were doing a buy one, get one. And so when you have three children, right, and your wife probably has as many stuffed animals locked away as the kids do, you know, out in the open, um, you know, I ended up with the extra bear. And so everyone looked at me and you got all three kids going, you want a, you want a bear? And so you go, sure, right? I want a bear. Um, and then, you know, they put the heart in them there. And so I said, can you put three hearts in there? And so now we have a deal where I have a heart in there for every one of the kids. And anytime during the day, if I'm not there, they can come by and hug the bear. And there's storing up love that never goes away that I can sleep with with my bear at night, right, when he's there. And so they, they'll just, they think it's precious. They'll grab that bear and cuddle with him while they're watching TV, while I'm away. And, you know, I, I can tell you there's so many nooks and crannies on that bear and his legs are a different size from his tummy and his head and there's different softness. It's a great neck pillow. So it works wonderfully for me. Uh, you know, you can use it any way you need to, under a shoulder, or an elbow, your neck, your ear. I mean, it's fantastic. See, I told you, you're going to want your own bear. So, but you, it might have to be the Chewbacca bear. For, I don't know if the other ones work as well as the Chewbacca does on medium firmness. Okay. You know, and here's the thing, though. That bear, like, it, it helps me sleep better. And it's a comfort at night to me, but it doesn't get up and go with me when I leave in the morning. 
And all too often, that's the place of doctrine and truth in our life. Right? That we have this body of truth that we profess and we believe in, but it doesn't go with us into life. It's comforting when life happens. Right? It's great for us to come home to. It's wonderful for us to share with one another, but it doesn't necessarily change our day and how we live our life in the day. And Paul, all through chapter one, we want to keep this thought in our mind as we move forward, has been pounding this truth to us that truth or doctrine, theology, and life are supposed to sync up. They're supposed to match one another. That orthodoxy, sound truth, what we count to be truth, and orthopraxy, right truth and right living or practice, those two things are supposed to match up with one another. And so Paul has left Timothy there to make sure and to instruct and to command uh, the church as the pastor of that church, as the elder of that church, to the elders of the church, that the church be uh, sure to preach and teach truth to life, right? And that's true for all of us as followers and disciples of Jesus Christ, that our lives and our proclamation of truth coincide and that they point together to Jesus. And so with that in mind, we go to chapter 2 then this morning, verses one through seven. Let's read those together. Paul writes there, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth for is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher, apostle. I am telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So if truth and life are to coincide with one another, where do we begin? How do we get started with that? Maybe a question that comes up very quickly. And you see here Paul saying, first of all, then. First of all, then. And so here's where you begin to sink truth or doctrine of theology and life Right here at the beginning of chapter 2 in the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul to Timothy about the life of the church. And Paul's not commanding here. He's exhorting. He's pleading with Timothy and the church. He says, first of all, then I urge. I urge to you. It's not, he's not saying you will do this. He's pleading and he's exhorting. Here's where this begins. So please pay attention here and consider this. And if you don't know this, then hear it today and put this into practice into your life and the life of the church. 
right, that we begin right here, that you begin with prayer. Here's where it begins. It begins with prayer. And it begins specifically with prayer that's for the salvation of others or what some would call evangelistic prayer. That's, that's where it begins. That may not be the first place you would think right, to get truth and life to start to match up. And yet as you walk through this text, you start to see why this is exactly the place we ought to go to to get truth and life to match up. You start with praying for the salvation of others. There's four words that Paul uses here for prayer. Uh, They're different words. They've got different nuances. There's really kind of two pairs together. And so you'll see their prayers uh, and petitions in some versions. It'll say prayers and petitions, comma, uh, uh, entreaties and prayers, actually, and petitions and thanksgiving. Right, entreaties and prayers, comma, petitions and thanksgiving. And so there's these four words, two each together that he shares. And they make sense when you look at them together. Entreaties uh, carries with it the root meaning of a lack or a need. And so that makes sense with how we use entreaties still today. If we're entreating someone, it's out of a place of need or want and having a lack. But now we're praying for others out of what we know to be their need and their lack. And so it carries with it the kind of the connotation of intercession for someone. And then you have prayers, uh, which is just a word that just means prayer. So it's not uh, nothing spectacular about the word itself. Uh, What's interesting or significant, I think, is that when you look at entreaties and petitions and thanksgivings, those are things that you can, I could entreat you. you know, I, I have a need. Will you help me fill this need? I can come to you with a petition. Right? I can come to you with thanksgivings. But this word here for prayer is only used in relation to God himself in the New Testament. Uh, prosuko is the word. And it's something only offered up to God. It's that thing which man began doing immediately after the fall. Right, that men began to what? Call upon the name of the Lord. That they began to call upon the name of God. And so when you take those two together, entreaties and prayers, then we're calling on the name of God according to the lack or the need that we know that someone else needs. And there's a lot of possibilities, and we can pray for a lot of things that we know that others need, but the greatest lack and the greatest need that people have apart from Christ is Christ. And that's what's in Paul's mind here in this text. We see it as you continue to read down through the text that he, he doesn't just have any need and any lack in mind, that he's thinking specifically of those who don't know Christ and haven't come to a saving knowledge, as he'll say in a moment, of Christ, that they need to know Christ, and that's the thing they need above all needs. And then he says petitions and thanksgivings there. And petitions, again, has a little bit of an idea of intercession, like entreaties does. But it's a word that the connotation of it, it comes from a place of identifying with and being involved with that need and that lack, that you uh, have a, a sense of that need because of your own experience, and you can identify with what's going on, and you enter into 
that circumstance to be alongside and with the one that's there. It's the same word that's used in Romans 8 when uh, Paul writes there about our praying, when our praying is so visceral and so emotional that all we utter is just, oh, right? It's all, we just, oh, and we groan our prayers because we don't have the words to shape. It's used there of the spirit interceding on our behalf. He takes our groanings and makes words of that before God and intercedes for us before the Lord with prayers that are now verbalized for us. It's the idea of advocacy, of empathy, of sympathy, of compassion. And so you're praying for others from a point of knowing where they are because we've, we've been there. And if you're here today and your faith is in Christ, you remember being in that place where you didn't know him and how your thinking was and what life was like and everything that comes with that. Petitions, but he says thanksgivings there, that there's a gratitude there. And you can think of that a whole bunch of ways, just a few that come to mind that, that we're thankful that God has manifest his love, that we're thankful that we know God's grace to us in Christ, that we're thankful that others will come to know Jesus Christ, because if there weren't still more to put their faith in Christ, we wouldn't still be here, right? That when the end gathering of the elect is done, the end comes and we see the unfolding of amazing, wonderful, powerful things. So the fact that's not happening yet, it's, there's still those to come that will put their faith in Jesus Christ. We're thankful for that. We're thankful that God is at work in the world in Christ and that God is at work in the world through his church and that God is at work in the world through even us, his people. And so we're praying uh, both from uh, a place of identity and identifying, but a place of thanksgiving. It's an expected thankfulness. God's promise and purpose in Christ that God's going to act in keeping with that. That's good. And those are prayers that are to be made, he says, on behalf of all men. And this is a, a verse we like to come through to often, right? Verse uh, 2. It says, prayers to be made on behalf of all men. And then out of all the men, those who are in authority. Kings, he says. And all who are in authority are to pray. And we are to pray for all men and then for kings and those who are in authority. And we're to pray this, right? That they would know the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the primary prayer. That we're interceding before God. We know to be gracious the salvation of all men, and we're interceding before the God we know to be gracious for the salvation of kings, presidents, mayors, governors, and all who are in authority. And so is that primarily how we are praying for those who are in authority in our day? All right, we pray often for wisdom, we pray often for good decisions, 
Now, when we say that, we have a certain good decision in mind, right? There's something we want them to do for us. Because it'll be better for us, right? But how are they going to make that decision? How are they going to have that wisdom? Why would they want to make that decision and do that thing if they don't know God and truth and Christ and the grace of God to us through Christ. Scripture tells us plainly they don't. They don't know it. They don't want it. And they don't want to make that decision. They won't make it. Because the mind that's hostile to God, the mind of the flesh is hostile to God and will not submit to God and in fact cannot submit to God. Romans chapter 8 verse 7. And so our first prayer, our primary prayer, until that person stands up and says, I met Jesus Christ, not as a figure from history, but I know him now as Lord and Savior. Until that happens, until we know that to be true of them, our prayer for them is salvation. And that God would bring Christ to them. And we can still pray that they make good decisions and that unbeknownst to why they would make those decisions, they'd make those decisions. But we need to be praying that they know the grace of God and that they come to know Jesus Christ. That's what we pray for them. And we pray evangelistically. I want you to catch this, though. We often come to verse 2 and we go, we're going to pray because we're commanded to pray. But we don't often continue reading down the rest of even verse 2, right? We are to pray, and we are to pray evangelistically so that our lives manifest a worshipful reverence for God. We're to pray for kings and those in authority with a purpose. And it's not just for them, it's for us. So that our lives would manifest a worshipful reverence of God You pray for all men, Paul says. You pray for kings and all who are in authority so that purpose, so that we, the church, may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And again, Paul uses four words, and again, he uses them in two pairs. So that this would be the result in our life from our prayer for kings and those who are in authority. The first two words, right? Tranquility and quietness. Do you have a place that is a tranquil place for you? Did you ever have that place growing up? Ever been somewhere where it was the most tranquil place you've ever been in your life? How often you fondly think back to that place or how much you love to go to that place? Right, was tranquil means, in essence, no disturbances. Maybe on a morning where there's not much wind, it's a, a stock tank on your property somewhere close by. We have a lot of those in the area, right? Maybe the house being all cleaned up, you know, there's a nook or a corner or a room where you go and it's always peaceful and tranquil and your soul can get quiet in that place. Uh, one of my favorite places growing up, we used to go to Lake Texoma for family reunion in June. June? I think it was June. Yeah, like second week of June. We always had to time it where it went from, you know, 88 or 94 to 106. 
That was the great time. That was the best weekend to have a family reunion, of course. You know, but you'd get up there and somebody in the family had a boat. And if you got up at like six and you're out on the lake just at the crack of dawn, there were places the wind was not moving yet. And you could get in the water and it was like a sheet of glass. And you could jump on a pair of skis and jump up and get outside the wake of the boat. And it was like, it was the most peaceful, just surreal moment. No one's out there. There's just you. Well, there's a boat and someone driving it. So there's a little bit of mechanical noise. But you're just out in creation, this most tranquil, serene, just cove around you. And that's the idea of the word here. No disturbances, but no disturbances within your heart is what this word tranquil means. And quiet is the same thing, but it's exterior to you, that there's no disturbances from you, right? Tranquility and quietness. We're to pray for all men. We're to pray for kings and those in authority so that you would lead a tranquil and quiet life. And that makes sense. When you are disturbed inwardly, right? When you are angry, when you get frustrated or anxious about something, you raise your voice, you become argumentative, you can get start to slander or impugn or be pejorative or malign someone else. Right? That inward lack of tranquility becomes an outward lack of tranquility. There's no peace inside, and so there's no peace outside either. We understand that dynamic. And so evangelistic prayer syncs your heart with God's heart. The primary concern of our hearts then is not what is happening to us. It's not what could happen to us, right? It's not the changing of the culture and the things that are going on around us. It's the salvation of souls. It's the fact, the problem of lostness in the world and the desire God has for men to know Christ. And so it makes God's purpose for salvation in Christ greater than everything else to us. It reminds you of the goodness of God. It reminds you of the grace of God. It reminds you that in spite of what we see going on, in spite of how that may uh, infringe upon our lives, in spite of the pain and suffering and the difficulties that that might cause for us, in spite of all that, that God is still a good and a sovereign and a powerful God. That God is at work in all of those circumstances to bring about his good purpose. And so it reminds us of that, and that quiet downs, quiet, quiets our soul inside, and then that brings a quietness outside for us. He says, a life that's tranquil and quiet in all godliness and dignity, he says to us. Godliness and dignity. Now, godliness is to worship in accordance with sound teaching. It's where it points us to, but where we understand worship not to be exaltation, but worship in the sense of Romans 12, 1 and 2, that in view of God's mercies, the gospel, God's grace, and what he's done for you, that you present your life a living sacrifice to God. That you uh, are not being conformed to the pattern of the world anymore. You're being transformed by the renewing of your mind through gospel truths so that you can prove God's will, what is good, and pleasing and acceptable to God. It's worship or obedience or service in 
service in accordance with the revelation. It's a life of holiness is what it is. Godliness. It's the attitude within that is that arises in dignity. Paul puts it here. Dignity is an word. It has to do with solemnity or sacredness, a certain heaviness that brings respect, right? It's a life that's marked outwardly by worship and the holiness of God that's felt inwardly. And so again, you have this kind of inward-outward dynamic, Marked, not marked by things that are fleeting or frivolous or temporary or passing. It's not concerned uh, with temporal things, but it's concerned with eternal or eternally significant things. Best illustration I could think of for this was the difference between a wedding and a funeral. You know, in a wedding, we come together rightly to celebrate in the moment and to rejoice and to have great joy at what God is doing and putting one life together with another and making a man and a woman one, right? And we're there. It's, it's what's there, what God's doing, God's grace to bring them there, and what's still ahead of them. There's a lot about life in that. There's a lot about what God's doing. But when you come to a funeral, it's, it's a different thing when you come to a memorial service. There's the emotions of loss, there's the passing of a life, and that passing of the life reminds us of the eternal. You can't help but think about eternity when you come to a memorial service. You can't help but remember one day folks will come to memorialize me. And it makes you think of eternally significant, eternally weighty things. And that this, was, this is convicting to me. Uh, this is convicting. Uh, our lives are meant to be marked by a reverent worshipfulness and by a dignity that is uh, a solemnity or a, an understanding of the sacredness, uh, the solemnness of knowing Christ and, and the significance of someone not knowing Christ or someone knowing Christ. That is such an eternally different thing. That, that doesn't stop being the way it is. And that our lives are about that. Whether we're in the Philippines, whether we're in Africa or Europe, or whether we're right here, that should mark our thinking. The weight, the seriousness, the significance of eternity, godliness. And so the, the questions ought to be asked from that, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that what, and it's what I'm thinking through this week as I'm studying this and we'll be thinking about this week as I thank the Lord for the blessings in my life and particularly for God's grace to me. Is this what characterizes my life? Is this what characterizes your life? Are we consumed with frivolous things, TV shows, sports games, whatever they may be? We consume with fleeting things, pleasures, goals that seem very important, goals of life for this month or this year, for life. Are we so consumed with the issues of our day, marriage, gender, equality, race, politics, that we are inwardly and thus outwardly lacking peace? I would say that through a large swath of the church in general in America today, we are lacking a settled 
peace. You can see it all over the internet. You can see it all in all the blogs. You can see it in the Facebook. I know you're tired of me saying it. But we're meant to be at peace because God is good. And in what we see even today, God himself is at work outside his sovereign hand. Our greatest concern, we're going to be concerned about the issues. We need to be able to speak to the issues. We've got to be able to express the truths of Scripture and the gospel to those issues. But our greatest concern is the gospel. So let's not be so consumed with other things that we're not worshiping God because we, in essence, are consumed with self-idolatry. It's about these big issues. No, it's really about what's important to us. And that's what's important to me today. Are those things more important to me than Christ is? Does Christ have a greater place in my life than those issues? And therefore, am I praying for the salvation of others? And then am I stepping out to engage in relationships with others that I know need Christ or that I need to know if they need Christ? Is my life shaped by the gospel or is it just what I come here on Sunday and profess or in my quiet time as I read my scripture, it's what I profess, but like my teddy bear, it just stays there when I go out to do everything else. Or is my life shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's desire that men would know him. And so is that the goal we have in mind when we pray, that we're praying so that we come to a place of peace? and a place of reverence inward and outwardly. So we pray evangelistically. We pray evangelistically so that our lives manifest a worshipful reverence for God that's centered on the gospel. And we pray, lastly, so that people from all the nations will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. All this whole verse 1 through 7 hangs together, right? Verse 3 and 3 through 7 just they. They go quickly. We needed to understand one and two differently than we normally do. Verse three begins this. What's the this? Praying. Praying evangelistically so that there's a peace and a reverence in our lives that points people to Jesus. This, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. That right there is language. That's Old Testament language about acceptable sacrifices about acceptable worship before God. You don't bring a lamb that's blemished. You bring a lamb that's unblemished and spotless. So what does a life look like that's good and acceptable in the eyes of God, before the face of God, in the sight of God? It's this, praying evangelistically and praying to the extent that we're no longer anxious inwardly and outwardly, but we have a peace and we have a reverence in our lives. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Because there, verse 4, he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge, and you could say they're a saving knowledge of the truth. Because God desires the basis of our praying evangelistically, the basis in Paul's mind, what he's thinking, why we pray to the extent that we're at peace and we have a reverence and a dignity in our lives is this because it's acceptable and good in God's eyes, because he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge 
there of the truth. Now, we could jump off. There's several of us right now thinking about this verse. I know you. Some of you are nodding at me right now. We're grinning, right? Oh, God's will about salvation and, you know, does he desire all men to save or predestine all of that? Well, we're not going to jump too far into those weeds because that, that's an issue of biblical theology and systematic theology that you bring all those passages to bear to come to an understanding of that. And that, to go too far off out on that would be to get away from Paul's point in this text, right? Suffice it to say this, uh, this is a place where uh, it does mention God's will regarding salvation. Uh, that a couple of things I'll give you to think about, and you can go look at, and we can talk about more later. That Scripture speaks about that which God desires to happen, but is not decreed will happen, and that's probably the statement that helps the most. Scripture talks both about things which God desires to happen, but He's not decreed to happen. When He, when it talks about things that He has decreed will happen, it most often uses the word bulamai. Right, his will, what he wants. When it talks about what he desires would happen, but is not decreed will happen, it, he uses the word thalo. And here we have the word thalo. And so this is not talking about God's decree and God's decree from the foundations before the foundations of the earth, right? But it's talking about that which God desires, the way we would desire things that may or may not happen, but in his mind, he knows what. He hasn't decreed these. We know from Scripture, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33.11. We know that God declares that all people should repent. Acts 17.30. We know that the heart that is hostile to God will not and cannot submit itself to God. That's Romans 8.7. And we know from right here that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a saving truth. But we don't know who they are. And so what we do is we pray. We pray for their salvation. And we pray for all men and kings and authorities so that we come to a place of peace and reverence so that through our lives, the gospel would be made known to all men. Because we don't know. God knows. And God has in his wisdom said, the message goes forth through you, the church. And so we pray we pray that they come to a saving knowledge of the truth. Here's the truth, and you can walk through verse 5 and 6 and put several things there next to it. There is one God. There's the base truth. Right? The Daltons are talking about it this morning. The Bible talks about it all through. There is no other God before me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. God is one. The base, a base understanding of the gospel tells people that God is one God and tells people that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three and one, one that is three. So there is, by faith, even if we can't present all the ins and outs of that, the gospel doesn't work if God is not Trinity. Another long discussion for another day. But at the base, there is one God. That's the first thing that's a component of gospel truth. Paul doesn't give you everything, but he gives you a really good list of what we need to know and what we need to be telling people right here. The nature of God. That's the first one, right? There's one God. 
The second one is that there's one Savior. There's one mediator, he says, between God and men. That mediator brings a reconciliation between two parties that are at odds with one another. And there's only one person, one entity who that occurs, and that's Jesus Christ. Only one way to come to God. There's one name under heaven and earth by which men are saved. There's one Savior. So there's one God. There's one Savior, mediator between God and men. And he says it's the man, Jesus Christ. And that goes to this mystery and this miracle of the incarnation. He says the man, Christ Jesus. And so he front ends, we usually say Jesus Christ. He front ends Messiah that word for the anointed one of God, which in the Old Testament, it's clear from Scripture that he's not simply a man, but he's deity, God himself. So there's the incarnation of Christ, that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. The incarnation of Christ. The gospel does not work without Jesus being fully human, fully divine. That truth has to be there. That it's a free gift is the next thing. He gave him self, right? No one coerced him. No one took his life. There's no authority or power greater than him that he came simply out of love for us and in obedience to the Father. He laid down his life to save us from sins. It's a free gift, freely given. Two more, that he's the substitute. He's a ransom for all, Paul says, talks about the substitution of Christ. Ransom is the idea of making a payment. We still use it. He's kidnapped, they're in bondage. You can make a ransom payment, free some. That payment, uh, periods in history, we said that was made to Satan. That payment was made to God. The wrath of God hung over our heads. Jesus Christ, his blood and atonement or a final payment for sin. To God the Father, wrath poured out upon Christ instead of us, right? And so in the wrath of God for us and for our sins, and then he's resurrected. So he's our substitute. And then lastly, he says there's a testimony that this act of Christ, Christ's incarnation, his death, his resurrection for us was the testimony fullness of time, God brought this about at the right time in history. God was sovereignly and providentially at work from the very beginning for that day to come to pass. And then it came to pass and it's in Christ. There's no other point and there's no other event in history we can point to and say there's salvation for humanity. Our culture, every culture points to someone, something, some other event other than Christ, and says we'll find salvation there. And salvation is only found right here and in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it is the testimony or the witness then of God's goodness and his faithfulness and his fulfilling of his promise. And so for that to come to bear, those truths to come to bear in our lives so that we have a peace and a reverence and a worship of God, and so that our lives match what we profess to be true, it's still the testimony that God's making of himself to the nations.
God has manifest himself most clearly through Jesus Christ, but God continues to make himself known through his church today and through the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. And so Paul says it was for this, these gospel truths, this gospel message that I was made a preacher, not of the Jews. It came by way of the Jews and it came through the Jews, but it's the promise in the Old Testament was all nations, Abraham, will be blessed in you. And so God has made Paul a preacher of the gospel to the nations. We pray, right? We pray evangelistically so that our lives manifest a worshipful reverence for God so that people from all nations would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's how we persevere in faith, through prayer or through evangelistic prayer. hope that blesses you, challenges you, convicts you, teaches you, changes you as you go into this Thanksgiving week and you thank God for the blessings you have and for the blessedness of knowing Jesus Christ, that we will be pointed out to those around us. God might even call someone from here, someone else from Wise County, Chico, Bowie, Alvord, Paradise, Cottondale, Decatur, Boyd, Springtown, and all the parts in between Bridgeport even, right? That God would take somebody and turn their hearts in such a way that he'll move his church to the people around them and somebody he might even move somewhere else in the world to make Christ known. This is God's heart for us. It's why we pray. Let's pray. And then we'll sing together and then Elder J.R. Roberts is going to come close us. Father, thank you for your word and for the blessedness of it and the truths that it contains. God, that it would instruct us and challenge us and convict us and encourage us God, break us down and call us to repent and then shape us back after the heart, your heart, and in the image of Christ, to follow him, to be his disciples, making disciples, that we'd be engaging one another, taking opportunities to gather together for fellowship, whether it be at home fellowship groups or just in our homes or out for coffee, dinners that we would be pursuing fellowship, discipleship, growth, and change in Christ together. God, that we would be your sent disciples, locally, nationally, and across the face of the earth. God, that we would proclaim the gospel, the truths of Christ to one another and to those, God, who so desperately need to hear it. How will they hear God, if we are not the ones going and proclaiming the good news. And so, Lord, shape us, God, through prayer, through evangelistic prayer. Kill in us, God, the anxieties and the turmoils and give us a peace and a reverence for you that marks our life with contentment and dignity, solemnity, weightiness, because we know the glory of God and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And then let those words come from our mouth. And let our lives serve others uh, so that men might come to know a knowledge of the truth. Bless us, O oh Lord. God, you've blessed us tremendously already this morning. 
God, in our lives. And so as we celebrate those blessings this week, let us just, again, know the blessing of Jesus and let it change us so that we might worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.